0: This is the Music Therapy Chronicles Year in Review series for 2020. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. I hope you're having a wonderful day and a wonderful holiday season, no matter what that might look like. Um, It's likely a little untraditional this year, but I hope you are enjoying whatever you're doing to celebrate the holidays this season, and I hope you enjoy this mini-series I've put together to finish out what has been quite a year. (laughs) I think we can all agree. So this year in review series is designed to be exactly what it sounds like. Um, I'm the type of person who loves a good reflection period and then goal setting for the future. And that's not to say that we necessarily need to set big goals moving forward into 2021, I acknowledge that everyone is in a very different place in life right now. And for many of us, just getting to 2021 is an accomplishment. And, um, even for say the goal of giving yourself grace with whatever comes at you and how you handle that situation. Um, yeah, that's an accomplishment in itself. So, My vision for this mini-series is to obviously listen back to some clips of episodes from this past year, Um, and when I was listening back to them and putting clips together for this episode, it was really interesting to think back to when I had these conversations initially, um, what was going through my head then versus what's going through my head now, How my thinking has changed, how my understanding of things has changed, how my perspective has changed. And I took different things away from each episode than what was initially salient when I had the conversation the first time. So I hope that for you, listening back to these episodes provides a similar reflective experience where you notice how much you have grown. And perhaps you want to go back and listen to the entire episode. Um, or maybe you don't, maybe you're ready to move on to something else, but as far as goal setting, hopefully you will take away something new from these conversation clips and can think of a way to apply it in 2021. And again, it doesn't always have to be about goals. We're all getting through life right now, but if that's something you feel called to do, I hope this series helps you in, um, in doing that. So the episodes in this series are not presented in any particular order. Um, they just kind of fell into place as I created this mini-series. So this particular episode features um, snippets from the conversations I had with Amber Rogers, Brandy and Laura Lai of Decolonizing the Music Room. Bradley Drosdowski. Kim Best, Carolyn Keeble, Bria Murakami, and Daniel Goldschmidt, and Shelley Anderson. So, in between each snippet, you'll hear um, a little musical break. I invite you to pause this episode at that time and maybe do some reflection, or maybe check out the show notes from that particular guest to dive deeper into what they're saying. The full-length episodes from each of these guests will be linked in the show notes, so you can, of course, find them there and listen back to these episodes in their entirety. Maybe you'll find, like I did, you learned something different listening back to it the second time. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please consider leaving us a review so that more people can find this type of content. You can follow us on social media. We are at Music Therapy Chronicles on all the platforms, and uh, please consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. Oh, and we have a newsletter. So if you have not signed up for the newsletter, please do that. You will get an exclusive self care episode with some downloads, and you'll be the first to know about some exciting projects that I've been collaborating on. All right, I hope you enjoy this year interview 2020 mini series.
1: years any place doing the same thing you know you just need a break so I took a break and then in fall I went to I started my studies in 2009 at Texas Women's University and I got my master's equivalency in music therapy that took forever but I got it done and I absolutely loved it Um, but um, saying that there was a lot of people who helped me get to where I am and one of my struggles growing up was I, I had a really difficult time with reading comprehension. It was really, really hard for me to learn. I have failed more things the first time that I passed. And I think that just built such empathy in me. Like, I was, I was the type of student that was so bad at theory uh, that they created a pre-theory class for me at OVU just for me and another student to learn theory Um, so that everything i've done has been such a hard climb but there are so many people who supported me and and have spent endless amounts of time tutoring me being in the practice room with me some of my professors allowing me to come to their houses and helping me edit my papers so much support and I truly believe that um, if you are helped you're supposed to turn around and help someone else mm. you know so 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 I knew that as being a music therapist it's not just about being a clinician which I love different populations but it's a, it's also my purpose is to turn around and help other music therapists become board certified And I knew that. I just didn't know how that would take shape, right? So out of all of the things that I have failed in my life, I mean, so many things. It just built such empathy um, in me. But the one thing that I did not fail the first time was my boards. I passed my boards the first time. And I contribute that to how I prepare for it. I contribute at how I prepare for it, prepare for it, and um, so many people just throughout the years have asked me, Amber, what did you do? What did you do? What did you do? And I've found myself like spending hours telling people how I did it, and um, you know, at the end of the day, they have to find what works for them, but. What I was telling people was really helping them. And I've heard so many success stories from it. Um, I've been tutoring people for three years, three years um, since 2018. Uh And I have gotten just some amazing testimonials that I I could share some great stories with you. But um, so so yeah, so that's how it started. I me just helping other people and my passion for growing this profession. I want to see this profession go. Um, CBNT three years ago statistics came out that um, first time test takers passed at like 73 percent. That was 73 percent was first time passing rate. It's gone down this year to 70%. So I'm even more focused on, okay, what do I need to do? How do I need to help these um, students cross that finish line? What can I do to support them? And I'm more passionate about it than ever. So so yeah, that's what I love to do. Um, that's how I got into doing this.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's it's the difference between product and process. You know, yeah. we talk about that a lot too, but so much of, of the process um, is what we're missing. Like we're just trying to aim for this perfect product that again is, is probably framed within a Western perspective, you know? So there's all that kind of stuff happening, but it's the process. Like how did you get here? All the mistakes you make, all the, all the interactions you have while you're with other people, like those are all, you know, inherent to the music making process. And uh, we don't get to talk about it or experience it as much as we should.
3: And I think to it, you know, we talk about repair, restorative actions and repair. And I was reading an article recently that talked about how heavily assimil- assimilationist, um, the roots of music were at a certain time period mm. um, in terms of, they they spoke more to to European immigration, but even looking at how we have, I, I say we, you know, the the whole system has has essentially like wrung out that element of music just being part of life. Yeah. Because it was. And, you know, I hear people who, you know, blame popular music and all
1: this stuff. <laughs> and
3: I mean, you can talk about it, whatever. But mm-hmm. like in terms of our roles as music educators, you know, like there's been this very assimilationist structure and there was like specific campaigning to have this pure American sense of what the highest form of music was to learn and a certain performance aesthetic and then pushing everything else out on the periphery of that and you know making this line and making this separation and deeply ingraining that. And now it's like, you know, now we have to look at how do we how do we repair that? And it goes back to reaching out to to culture bearers and music makers for whom that that split didn't necessarily happen or they maintained that that other side so much that that we can talk about how to how to reconnect yeah
2: yeah and I think just the outcome of that is is that you are performing or learning music in a classroom much differently than how you would consume it outside of life and it's yeah. just they don't even seem to, to relate anymore and I think that's just the outcome of it, which is sad right We should try to make what we teach in the music class reflect more. Of what our students are experiencing of music outside of music class
3: yeah and those other things can be adaptations for practical purposes but not full replacements
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah well it sounds like um you both have a beautiful vision and you're you're mm-hmm. melding these these clashing narratives right now you're melding them so well um and the approach you're taking to me seems seems very sustainable. Uh, even though this is, like we said, this is tough. It's it's tough work. It's time consuming, uh, but we need it. We need it so much. So appreciated.
3: Thank you. Yeah, we're um, we'll see. We'll we'll see the <laughs> the effectiveness, and then we'll we'll change if we need to change. You know.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 1st we'll just try to convince people that's just start with that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We
3: have to give a certain level of understanding it's even you know like we we talk about resources and the idea of of like resources um, first and relationships second I think is something that we're really struggling with so um, I was looking at a post today it was about hip-hop culture and teaching hip-hop and Knowing culture bearers and talking to people from from the South Bronx and just all this, you know, like this rich information. And down the, the post, a teacher says, Well, do you know if there were just like a graduate course I could take in hip hop? And I was like, You just got all this this amazing information about actually connecting with the humans who know about and are doing this living tradition. And, but the default was like, what is the formal Mm. um, academic setting that is prescribed in which I can engage in this thing with a certain level of, I guess, protection and safety and, and honestly, the comfort of it being structured in a way that's seen as more valid. Yeah. And so, you know, people put those like, you know, what's this book? I mean, you could also talk to the. The person that <laughs> that talks about their their lived experience all the time and talk to more more and more people. Sure, we we see the value in reading and understanding. And you you can't discredit just giving language to be able to share to talk and learn about things. It's incredibly valuable, and you can learn so much through through reading. But just the idea that um, you have to get. Something, something structured to pick through first, versus finding people to connect to to learn a thing, is is something we keep coming up against. And I, I'm only going to speak for myself. At the very beginning, um, I, I didn't, I hadn't processed it as strongly as that. So, you know, we would. I, I remember talking to Laura Line, just kind of working through a little bit. But especially in the last few months, it's gotten to the point where we're like, oh no, this is definitely something that we can speak about in very, very plain terms. And I feel like our ideas about it have, have formed more than before.
4: So, so the, um, I, I sort of condensed to seven from, yeah, I condense it down to seven primary concerns um, from 22 sort of themes that I coded, and, and I'll, I'll just read them here, and some of them are longer, so I might just sort of you know, leave this and that out, but um, number one being that there is too much in the way of performative displays of allied support on social media without a tangible, tangible actionable step toward change. Um, this was expressed by many as a concern. The conversation is actionless and self-serving, which which I was intensely aware of in with this post because it, it was doing that, you it, some, know, to some degree. It, it had, um, you know, it, it had my intention of generating discussion. But at the same time, I can't ignore that it also in some ways was performative.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Maybe it can't, maybe, maybe something like that can't be both. Can't not be both at the same time. Um, two, that there's a growing interest from white music therapists in gatherings, uh, in gathering and developing resources, education, and support groups on white fragility, white accountability, and "quote unquote" how to be an ally, which which had had an opposing side too. It was this like, how do we? It was white white music therapists can come together and talk about you know what, how can we do the work without having to burdening. Black music therapists on training us or teaching us, educating us, because they have their own thing that they're doing. Whereas on the other side, it was like, well, what is that going to do? We need to be, we need to be listening to black voices, not only listening to, but lifting um, and also working with, what does it do to separate those groups out? So it's, and it's easy to see, it's, it makes sense to see both of those viewpoints. Mm -hmm. It makes, it makes perfect sense, at least to me to see that, yeah, both of those things are important. And is there something to do with the sort of boldness of it? Yeah, Yeah. number three being um, white music therapists need to balance, one, standing back to listen and to lift um, uh, Black voices in our field, um, and two, not leaning on the overwhelmed minority of Black music therapists for support and guidance of needing to, quote-unquote, figure it out ourselves. This includes differing thoughts and opinions on acting, listening, and doing both. Number four being an emphasis from many on working to avoid engaging in white saviorism. This includes taking caution with art and music making as a public display of support for Black music therapists, Black and Indigenous people, people of color. Um, Five is systemic racism in the field of music therapy starts in our university programs, which are founded on the hegemony of Western classical music traditions. provides little support in the way of scholarships and financial aid for marginalized groups and bachelor's, master's, and internship education opportunities, and um, which struggles to integrate cultural education and diversity into coursework, research, and curricula. Um, that one's a longer one, but I'll finish it out. This also generated some discussion regarding master's level entry in music therapy and its relationship with the lack of diversity in the
5: field. Mm.
4: Because that was also i think when this when the when the mle thing was was going down nationwide mm-hmm. um one of the major points was that, that it, it bars diversity um and i i really want to i really want to see that research be done i really want to know what the what the information is around that and i think it takes a lot more than just looking at, at, at therapy training programs and music therapy and creative arts therapy programs it means looking at but that whole that whole item, as as a complete thing, looks at figuring out how do we how do we make changes for our field in um, um, among an entire system because we're not the only we're not the only university program and universities are this huge industry mm-hmm. this huge thing and and what change we make how can that affect how universities function. In the first place, on the ground, but but how does how does the system of university of higher education impact what we're able to do in, in in our training as music therapists? Yeah, six being music therapists are struggling to keep practices and businesses open during the pandemic, which affects their ability to engage meaningfully and frequently in social justice activism and dialogue about systemic racism in our field.
6: Yeah. So this
4: this sort of like well we're we're all going through hard times right now like when you cake on police brutality and racial injustice which has been around for a very long time but when you cake on this sudden sudden wakefulness to it
6: mm-hmm.
4: onto a global pandemic and the Trump presidency
0: <laughs> thanks for throwing that in there too
4: <laughs> you know yeah you know you're 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 left with a lot of competing things and uh, you know I I guess I don't. I don't hate to say it, but that's its priorities, you yeah. know, for the for the music therapist, and we're all we all have a different way of juggling those priorities and a different way of experiencing them. Yeah.
7: And the last one
4: is um, an expressed need to build comfortability with addressing the subject of systemic racism and injustice with music therapy clients, and engaging the voices of those um, whom music therapists serve in the discussion on the topic of race in music therapy which, which I think is, is really important. Um, I call, I call it a sort of gimmicky thing because I think it, you know, just ends up being a big buzzword, but you know, we, we do say it has to come back to our clients. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of bad faith use of that expression because a lot of the time, some of the things that we do don't come back to our clients or, or just miss the mark in, in, in representing our clients or standing for our clients. Mm -hmm. Um, but but this is certainly true. We really do need to show up right now for just in the same way that we need to show up for our clients for their concerns and anxieties about COVID, we have to be there. We have to be there for this too. And and my my sort of frame of thought around the race piece and and work with our clients is we're looking at a at a at an opportunity um, where we can really change what the role of the therapist is in the society hmm. because the the role of the therapist for so long is so is so stuck in the treatment room um and and you know is 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 closed to and it has it this isn't this isn't like true and sure fact all the time but a lot a lot of a lot of therapists are there for their clients the individual and that relationship is so important but when Add all of these different intersecting issues that are systemic into your work with your client. You're really, you're really in bad faith when you're when you're when you're choosing just to just to heal through that relationship with that client and not bring into account all of these other things that are influencing it. So, I it really for me feels like the role of the therapist needs to include more social interest.
7: Hmm.
4: How can you how can you work with your client to like there's no amount of COPA head and C B T skills and externalization and, and values that can prepare your young teenage black client for the more likely and inevitable encounter with a police officer. There's no amount of C B T skill that can that can prepare you for that. Especially if you're a white therapist. You just you oh I I can't I can't sort of like even search in myself and find a conclusion for what that um, so it it means, do, it means doing social, social justice work, it means doing activist work, it means showing up outside of our work and integrating that into our work to show up to, to lift communities and fight for systemic change. Because it really is like, I, I can't think of a, of a harder slap to the face to our clients to, to do right by them in the treatment room, but not do right by them in our community, not do right by them in our world. Yeah. Maybe that's a tall glass of water, but that's that I think is, is an opportunity that we have as a field and as as people in this society to really change the role of the therapist. And I say therapist because that's that's every therapist, that's art therapist, it's music therapists, social workers, it's psychologists and and the like.
5: Um, and that was one thing unique to Minnesota. There were a lot of music therapists working in elder care, at least at the point when I was there. Um, and then moving back to Rochester again, I realized, oh, there are only like maybe a few music therapists working in long-term care facilities with older adults. Um, there's only one person well actually there's two people on hospice care one person who has a full-time job doing that a music therapist um and then only two music therapists in the hospital so in the in the medical scene so it's like what i saw there now being back in rochester i'm comparing everything to mm-hmm. i'm like oh wait there were always hospice jo- hospice jobs available there, there were always like there were music therapists in so many long-term care facilities and so many memory care facilities and here it's like where are you? like wh- it, like first of all, is there a music therapist at this facility? like I don't know and and why don't like why don't I know is there could there be a place where I could find that information out? So far, not really. <laughs> Um, and then second of all if there isn't a music therapist there has there been anyone who taught who's talked with the facility to start a position or program so it's like I was thinking I I am I always am thinking all these thoughts like okay but what about that place they don't have a music therapist um and then another another thing that I loved about the culture of music therapists in Minnesota was their state association. And as you may know or you know if you're listening as you may know not every state has a state association. And it's almost surprising when you find out a state that doesn't have one. At least in my mind so coming back to New York State I'm like okay as of right now I don't know if there's a state association but why not and like did anyone try to start it is there someone working on it right now like I'm so interested to see because what I saw in Minnesota was a space where music therapists were supported And a place where music therapists knew to go to find out information about music therapy in the state. Excuse me, sorry. And then this beautiful community of music therapists who would support one another. And the Minnesota Music Therapists Association would put on um, CMTE workshops. I think twice a year, like once in the fall and once in the spring. Um, And then they started a mentorship program. I think that may have been right when I was leaving. So there were all, it it just, it felt like a community. It felt like this, this, this big circle of music therapists holding hands and helping one another. So that was something that I felt in Minnesota that when I came back to New York state, I didn't feel it felt more competitive. Mm. It felt it it didn't feel like this community of comfort and support in the air. It felt like tension in the air. And that's not a good feeling. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't sit right with me. And I know that doesn't sit right with a lot of people, a lot of music therapists especially. And I'm like, okay, we, why is there this tension in the air? Okay, maybe because there aren't a lot of jobs. Okay, well, why aren't there a lot of jobs? Oh, maybe it's because there aren't many music therapists, one in private practice, there are very few here. Like, I don't even know who they are because I feel like the only one. And, um, <clears throat> There are, I don't know the, who is out there networking with facilities and trying to create new programs. A lot of music therapists here are doing that within their own organizations and their own positions. They're trying to expand the program, which is excellent. That is what we need. Um, but besides those people within the already established programs within organizations what about all the places who don't already have music therapists Hmm. who who's tapping into that you know not really many people as far as I know um at least here in Rochester that I see and that really stirred something inside me to not only ask the questions but say okay maybe maybe it's going to be me maybe I'm going to be the person to take a step in that direction and create new programs or at least network with people and advocate for music therapy and hopefully down the road develop some more programs and positions here. Good for you. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's so funny because starting out as a new professional, I remember telling myself, like, I, I never wanted to have my own practice. I never wanted to start my own business. Um, but I feel like it's something that I kind of found my way into. It's almost like I fell down the road, and at the end of the road was this open door that led me into this way of doing music therapy. <laughs> mm. um, <clears throat> so... And that's, like, that's a whole story in and of itself, too.
0: So you, you threw out a lot of things, and, like, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to for the world to open up and to go on these retreats and to travel and all these things. In... All of the traveling you've done, all the teaching and and the learning and the people you've met, are there any like really salient experiences you've had that just have totally reshaped, you know, your practice, the way you see the world, any of that? Some of your favorite experiences? Uh,
6: I think every experience I've had has reshaped me Mm. endlessly. So every trip I took, you know, as a study trip um, was a cultural immersion experience. And I I will say that I purposely have chosen and made great efforts to travel as a non-tourist. I wanted to have the most typical kind of experience I could. So I've been able to connect with people and teachers and experiences that took me into some very deep places of discomfort and unfamiliarity mm. as a you know privileged white westerner i you know had no access to these kind of experiences no no personal up close encounters with how so many people on our planet are living with so very little and how they maximize fully and do so many things with drum and dance and music and song to emancipate and liberate their spirits and to stay well and healthy. And you know to have these incredible positive attitude about life with so much less than we think we need here in the Western world. Mm-hmm. And that has just taught me endless gratitude and humility and uh, you know encouraged me in my own ways to do as much to support other people's you know ability to to have access to things that they that they don't necessarily have and to work and collaborate as much as possible with with BIPOC individuals in the music and arts community who I see are incredibly talented and have so much to offer the world but they are you know, held back by the, the systems and the, the issues that we have deeply ingrained in our society here. And if I can be a partner and a collaborator and a, a liaison to help emancipate their situation, you know, and to bring their power into the forefront and to be able to, you know, watch them thrive and grow and then all the ripples that that sends out into our world that encourage other people who see that. They need to see role models, right? We, we mm-hmm. need to have role models from every perspective to help encourage the next generations. And, you know, just because of the things I've studied and, and participated in, travel has put me in the minority position on nearly every occasion. And that was such an important experience to have, and one in which I needed to accept whatever was offered to me. You know, I, I can say, you know, for for health reasons and my own path that I was on in my early twenties, I decided, okay, you know, I'm uh, I'm going to be a vegetarian for a period of time. You know, I thought this was going to be my lifetime after I after I left my uh, my childhood home and could have my own autonomy and choose my own health practices and nutrition this is my choice and then when i was traveling you know i immediately realized within like less than 24 hours that that was not something i could travel with Mm. that that for me i was like i cannot impose this on my host who invited me here and they want me to experience this traditional culture that i said i want to experience i Mm. came here and i say i want to taste the local food i want to understand what what life looks like what life feels like on a daily basis for for the people here and why drum and dance is so strong and vibrant you know it gave me the context for the role it plays within that culture and society and that meant you know that if i went to a sacred ceremony and they sacrificed the goat and then if the goat was prepared and that was part of of our celebration and ritual that evening. I'm not going to say no thank you. I'm not going to say can I get a salad, mm-hmm. you know, this was just ridiculous and it just like it really set me straight quickly and I'm glad I did that early on because then I was like okay, you know what? <laughs> Life has to be that of a flexitarian, you mm-hmm. know, for my for me to feel respectful to the people who are sharing so much with me. And this is so important to, to our relationship and to not cause insult or injury and disrespect of what is part of, of their cultural practice and way of life. So I can just say, you know, over and over again, that was part of, of my experience and taught me so much, you know, profound, profoundly shifted me.
8: they organized a hill day or a bunch of music therapists descended upon Springfield Illinois and it was a really busy day a lot of it is chasing down your legislators trying Mm -hmm. to get a five-minute meeting with them and I actually got one like on my third visit back to my state senator's office Uh, I got a five-minute meeting so I really it was like all my elevator pitches had to like really deliver in that moment So, you know, he heard my spiel about the bill advocating for music therapy licensure and the kind of gotcha question for me, and he wasn't meaning to be a gotcha question, but he said, you know, a license is meant to protect the public from something. What are we protecting the public against by licensing Mm -hmm. music therapists? And I really had no concrete answer for him. And that, I think, is a totally fair question. You know, Mm -hmm. what makes us stand out? As music therapists, we obviously don't own music as a, you know, a therapy. The therapeutic benefits of music, we don't own that. So this kind of got me thinking, like, wait a minute, like, what what am I trained to do better, or what am I trained to avoid as a music therapist? And that wasn't a conversation that I had had in any of my classes that I could remember. So I started digging around the psychotherapy literature a little bit, and I mean, Daniel and I have had. we're starting to have conversations about all that as well and so all of that came to i created a model for how we can understand sources of potential harm in music therapy practice and it's evolved it's had several iterations over the years Um, and the latest one is under review at music therapy perspectives so hopefully that will be coming out soon but i got to get my reviewers comments back
7: when did you first present on that again
8: I presented, I presented earlier versions of my model at the national conference in 2017, as well as the Western Region conference in spring of 2018. I think mm-hmm. so. It's been kind of it's been out there, um, and there was also an AMTA Pro podcast about an earlier version of my model. Um, it just life happened, and getting it back into you know the published literature has just been a little bit of a a pause there
7: Hmm.
1: yeah
7: and and the reason i'm here (laughs) is because (laughs) all this um you know bria's model and everything we've talked a lot about it and her and i presented together on it at that national conference and did that podcast you mentioned together um and i've did like a little presentation for it and um but yeah it's so that's why I'm also part of the team.
8: <laughs> well, Daniel has given me I mean, we've had lots of conversations and I guess we're talking really abstractly about the model before maybe listeners don't know what it is. Um, Trish, I can send you a picture of the updated model so they can look at it because describing mm. it abstractly is kind of tough. It's this triangle that now is you know, has these three circles Ooh. around it.
7: That'd be a really great like radio lab style segment where we're like one of us starts describing it and the music comes on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's a triangle. da 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 da. Sorry, I just like had this image in my mind and wanted to share it mid podcast.
0: Creative arts therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm.
8: But I mean, in those conversations with Daniel, Daniel has a background. What is your, you have a graduate certificate?
7: Oh, during my master's at CSU, I did a certificate in gender, power, and difference, and I focused Mm -hmm. on whiteness and music therapy. Um, Well, I did a thesis on whiteness and music therapy, and I presented on that at National in Minneapolis last year, and then I presented it, quote unquote, in South Africa this summer, not actually was online, but for the South Africa World Congress. And then I'm doing a talk for the Minnesota, the Music Therapy Association of Minnesota this month, and then in California in January. So that's like a niche I'm kind of getting into, I guess, is looking at some race stuff uh, about white supremacy and music therapy. And so that's something Brie and I have talked a lot about. Mm
8: yeah and so in those conversations about you know daniel bringing up like well okay well your background in social justice definitely helped me see hey there's this like bigger contextual environment around your my original triangle um and so i mean our conversations definitely informed the next evolution of my model that um is currently under review that was not part of the amta pro podcast when we did that in 2017. oh
7: that's right that's right
0: yeah, so that's why you're here.
7: Oh yeah, that thing. Thanks. <laughs> well,
0: that's a great example of music and harm, and how lack of education with racial oh, yeah. justice and music therapy can can be um, harmful, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And we're yeah. we're really as a profession start. Um, I don't want to say starting because obviously you've done this work, but more of us are coming to the table to to look at that as a topic
7: i also want to clarify that like i'm like i've been doing it for like a year but there are people who've been doing it for decades (laughs) so people before me yeah so just to name that for a second because um uh so we're not getting credit where it's not due um but yeah like the white i mean even i just saw someone uh comment on something the other day about um a kid in one of their groups was like oh i was going to pick a rap song for this thing but i didn't i didn't want it to be inappropriate so i picked this song instead and that to me is just so harmful, not just because it's painful, but because that child had internalized that this type of music was wrong and bad, mm. you know, so that and that's something that music therapists are teaching by accident or maybe on purpose in certain cases. But just by saying, oh, that's inappropriate, no, we can't do that when it's something that really is based in our lack of knowledge about rap music, for instance, or our cultural um, the way. Well, anyway, we we can go down that rabbit hole later. but. That's just so deeply harmful when it's internalized. It's not even just about the moment anymore. Yeah.
8: And yeah, Trish, I really appreciate you even having us on the podcast. I think one of the more just kind of foundational issues around this topic, more people are talking about it, obviously, and that's increased a lot in the last three years, but... A lot of music therapists haven't even considered like oh how do i even recognize when harm comes up or how am i a source of harm which obviously doesn't feel good and then you know if we're not aware that harm is possible in our sessions we can't really be equipped um, personally or we can't equip the next generation of music therapy students to okay what are the best practices for responding to harm and minimizing and eliminating harm in our sessions in an immediate way and also how can we reduce harmful interactions with our clients before the negative reactions or responses even have a chance to come up.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just kind of like that timeline of being able to talk about harm before it could possibly happen, trying to do it like figure out how it might happen, how to deal with it when it is happening right now, and how to assess a session and see if it was harmful from the future. You know, so it's kind of all across that time span of a an engagement with a client. Mm-hmm. Or in well, in the whiteness stuff, I also dig into in education and supervision and like, you know, recruiting the whole shebang, but the models about the client therapist relationship.
2: Yeah.
0: So you mentioned that it's a, it was or it is a triangle, depending on which iteration we're looking at mm-hmm. uh, with the circle. So for anyone who's like in their car and can't look at the picture right now, can you try <laughs> and break it down for them, uh, whether it's a visual or just an explanation how you do that? Sure.
8: Yeah, absolutely. So, OK, so first um, the triangle is the corners of the triangle. Are formed by the three basic ingredients that define music therapy. So think uh, the top. We're thinking of an equilateral triangle. So at the very top um, is the client. The, you know, we need a client, a service user, I suppose. In this case, um, the client is a willing participant generally, but they're not necessarily responsible for maintaining safety because you know they're the one that's doing the therapeutic work. Mm. On the left side of the triangle, that's the music. So that's any auditory event that arises in the music therapy session. Of course, it can be recorded or live or spontaneous improvisations. Uh, Let's see. And then the third ingredient, the right corner of the triangle is the music therapist. And so that is who we are both as an individual, like my personality, my style, my philosophy of music therapy and my decisions that I make. Um, Okay, so then we've got, so clients at the top, music is in the left corner, the music therapist is in the right corner. Then the sides of the triangle are the relationships or interactions that are formed between each of those three corners. So if we, um, the right side would connect the client and the music therapist. So that is the therapeutic relationship, that alliance, that rapport, that trust that's built over the course of therapy. The bottom side of the triangle connecting the music therapist to the music, I'm calling that the therapeutic applications of music. Mm. So those are the decisions, often musical decisions or therapeutic decisions that the therapist is making in the moment to facilitate the session. Or it might be their session planning, which which NMT protocol am I going to bring in? Or how am I going to respond to this interaction amongst the group members? And then the final side of the triangle on the left side connects the music to the client. And I'm calling these the client music associations. So this would be the client's preferences or any conditioned responses to certain, um, I don't know, musical timbres or musical patterns or their associations and thoughts about the musical artist or, you know, all these kind of extra musical associations that can also come up. So that's our triangle and then the five the newer piece um there's like imagine three concentric circles all around the like encompassing the entire triangle and i'm calling these the ecological factors because of course therapy does not happen in a vacuum there's always this context that is in the background that we Some things we may be consciously aware of, other things we're not consciously aware of when we're leading our session. So like the innermost circle, I'm calling those the micro ecological factors. So that's the immediate session environment. So are there other group members? Um, What time of day is the session taking place and what's the physical Mm -hmm. environment? Kind of the middle circle, I'm calling those meso-ecological factors. So these are, I don't know, more contextual factors that are longer term specific to the client. So the client's um, cultural identities, the music therapist's cultural identities, their personalities, that kind of thing. And then the outermost circle, I'm calling those macro-ecological factors. So these are societal and political forces at play. In whatever like society, yeah, like a pandemic, <laughs> you know, a, a client's not able to access services as much or, um, you know, the effects of racism and how that comes into play in a music therapy session or the, the state of the healthcare system at large and whether that impacts the client's ability to access music therapy services as well. So all that to say, that's a lot of different pieces at play in all of our music therapy sessions. I, my model posits that all of those pieces except the client can be a potential source of harm in clinical music therapy practice. Mm. So hopefully not all of them are a source of harm that converge all at once. But um, yeah, my paper lays out like, okay, how how can each of these potentially be a source of harm and then how can we also reduce harm by weighting or um, changing the importance of the other factors that are not a source of harm as immediately as possible.
0: Yeah, those are all things like you've covered. Obviously, that's the point. You've covered so many of those variables, but to also put them into that visual, even just your description of it made me like, ah, oh, like it seems that much less overwhelming for me as a music therapist to keep all those things in mind being like oh here's my visual with like these are the three points these are the three circles and like from there as you said where am I gonna wait things that's um such an accessible way to address this problem so thank you for breaking it down like that
7: It's also beautiful because it can not just be used theoretically, like look at, you know, this model of harm, but it could even be used diagnostically. Mm. That after a session, you'd say something didn't go right. Let's like look at it. This one intervention, here's what happened. And you can look at these different areas and go, well, you know, and use it as a way to visualize. I mean, I just picture an assessment that someone could have in like supervision, you know, where you have that triangle and the three circles and all right, let's figure it out, you know. and, and, And part of the model also is this, you know, just like, with the structure, you know, if one area gets, you know, harmed in some way, as long as there's a lot of strength in the other areas, you'll probably be, be probably be fine. Mm-hmm. But the more areas that get weakened or harmed in these ways, the more likely it's like you can't save it or it's catastrophic or it's deeply harmful, um, which I, actually the models helped me in other areas of life too. I was thinking that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where it's like this thing, like it's about how many plates you're dropping, you yeah. know, not just... Um, yeah. So so it's helped me a lot I know thinking of this model in um because we were talking about this model just as I started my masters and um TAing and supervision and stuff. So it was helpful for me in moving forward with all that to teaching young yeah. uh, teaching uh, practicum students.
2: Yeah.
0: And back to the original genesis of this project what a great um not only practical but tangible example to give to someone asking about like what are we protecting the public from and you literally Mm -hmm. have like this is it this is what we are trained in that other music professionals are less likely to be trained in Mm -hmm. uh and why it's important that we are licensed and recognized and advocacy things
8: Absolutely. And I mean, all this to say, even though I like things to be as delineated and clear and articulated as possible, when, you know, when I recognize that something didn't go as well as it could have, or potential harm has occurred, there's going to be disagreements. I mean, a lot of these factors, of course, interact and overlap with each other. So any discussion about harm, if it comes up in supervision or an education setting should be that ongoing conversation. And like tearing this apart is obviously not straightforward. So I do want to acknowledge that as well.
0: more about your sign sheets
9: yes so they were originally born specifically for that one client whose parent identified you gotta give me something you got to help me use this at home um so what they are is they're pictures of me doing a sign with sometimes a note underneath it um because Sign language is a visual language. It's not meant to be put on paper, which is why it's um, not usually found on paper until recently as more people are trying to learn it. Um, But it's also hard to read on paper sometimes. So there will be a picture of me, there'll be arrows showing which way the sign goes, exact hand placement. And then sometimes if it needs a note underneath, it'll have the word and a little note about how to do it at the bottom. Um, And I found, too, that most times when people are learning sign language, you don't necessarily know where to start. Like, how do you start anything? Everything you're going to learn is so big and so broad. So um, making it bite size for families was really important to me. Um, So I would start with first signs, like basic needs, more, all done, water, sleep, help things like that, like very basic communication. Um, And as parents would get more comfortable with that, then we could go into things like colors or toys or, especially in the summer, outside signs. And my goal and encouragement for these families was always to take this sheet, do whatever you need with it. Like I encourage you to have clothing signs posted above the dresser And outside signs, go outside. Like, I will laminate them for you and put them out there. Or food signs, go in the kitchen. That way, when your child walks up to you signing something, you're like, ooh, I recognize that, but I don't have it memorized yet. I can't quite pull out what they're saying. You just look up. There's the sign sheet. You can match the picture to what they're doing. And you know exactly, oh, my kid wants to go swimming right now. Or, oh, my kid needs a banana. Um, and it just cuts down on the tantrum. So I encourage them like, cut them up, put them on a binder ring, give them to the babysitter, post them somewhere, like do whatever you need to do.
0: So much for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you're enjoying this year in review series, feeling perhaps a bit nostalgic um, and also invigorated, inspired, and excited for 2021. Um, I'm excited to have more awesome conversations like this. I am looking forward to having a greater dialogue with you, the listeners, and as I've said, Looking forward to some exciting projects that I've been collaborating on. So sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss anything um, regarding that. And don't miss any of that news. Also follow us on social media. We are at Music Therapy Chronicles. Please consider becoming a part of our Facebook group. And also please consider becoming a patron on patreon.com slash music therapy chronicles patrons have the exclusive opportunity to ask guest questions so if there's someone you want to have on the show in 2021 you can let me know by shooting me an email to hello at music therapy chronicles.com and then you can become a patron and ask them all your questions all right I hope you have a wonderful rest of 2020 and a beautiful new year.